Philippians 3, we're going to look at the last half of that chapter. I think you can find the text on page 981 in the Pew Bible. In Philippians, well, in in Scripture in multiple places, we find that there are these images of life and metaphors that help us gain an understanding, a picture uh, of what it is to be a Christian. The, The Christian life as we live here there, is, uh, there are these metaphors that Scripture uses. One of those is of an athlete. And uh, that's part of what we see in our text this morning that Paul writes of, which works out perfectly, uh, almost perfectly, because the Olympics just uh, wrapped up a week or two ago. But it would have been perfectly aligned. Many of you, did anyone watch the Olympics? Did some of you watch the Olympics? Please tell me you were. some of you were watching the Olympics. There's, you know, there's times when you watch the Olympics, you're like, could we hurry up and get to the event? Right? Could we could, could could we could we just zone in on the the main events and and then every once in a while you get a little bit distracted and and uh, you know I, you know you you get the backstory and sometimes I actually enjoy I, I'll have to admit even when I'm eager to see the main event that you enjoy sometimes this little backstory that they give about individual athletes from around the world and their story and it gives you kind of an enhanced appreciation for what they're doing. Well, let me tell you the story about one of those from the Olympics many, many years ago. Uh, back in 1952, there was a British runner, a track and field athlete. His name was Roger Bannister. And uh, he was running in the 1500. And uh, he had high hopes to, uh, to win, not only to win gold, but to actually break the world record. And uh, he, he didn't do it. He, he did break the, uh, the British record for the 1500, but he ended up finishing fourth. Which is not bad, you know. Uh, but he, he, he really envisioned, he had dreams, he had trained hard, and he was very diligent. Ended up uh, being very, very, uh, you know, kind of, he was bummed out. He was, he was discouraged so much so that in the, the season following the Olympics, he just debated whether he would even continue on and just give up running competitively altogether. Uh, but then one day he actually got a vision of, of a new goal that he could press towards. And the new goal was this, that he would be the first man ever to break a Four minute mile, a sub four minute mile. Now, I ran track in high school and uh, it was all I could dream of to break a five minute mile. So a four minute mile, you can understand, uh, even in the 50s was a pretty substantial thing to do and no one had done it. And many people thought that it was altogether impossible. And so he set out. But but it meant that at this season, he's no longer just a training Olympic athlete. He was uh, he was in med school and then he was a resident. And so for that time, he was very, very busy and he would cram in every opportunity, even at his lunch hour for an hour. He would go out and train and try to prepare to break this this world record with the mile. Then in uh, London, and, uh, or excuse me, at Oxford in 1954, there was a meet. There were 3,000 spectators there. And uh, he, he went out and he had gone to the hospital early there, sharpened his spikes, and the conditions were right. And he ran, and then the whole crowd uh, bursted uh, You know when they, they announced the time when it started with three minutes. And, of course, he had done it. Three minutes, 59 seconds, 59.4 seconds. He had ran the sub-four-minute mile. That record, by the way, only lasted 46 days because other people were compelled then to do it. And they and others did go ahead and break that goal and uh, that world record this year, particularly uh, at the Tokyo Olympics, because of the track and the new surface that they had uh, established there for uh, the track and field events. There were many world records broken this year. And one of those you may have seen was broken by an American, Sydney McLaughlin. She's 21 years old. Or 22. Now she's the only woman in history to run in under 52 seconds the 400 meter hurdles. 
She set a record. She ended up, of course, winning the gold medal this year. Uh, Her words reflect her faith as she boldly said, records come and go. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. She writes, I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect God's perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything, but by grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. That's beautiful. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Philippians 2, verse 12. Hear this. This is God's word. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and anything you think otherwise, well, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we have wait a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then I'll read this first verse of chapter four. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You may be seated. Let's pray. Come, we ask right now, Father. By the power of your spirit and shine light, if our hearts are hard, would you soften them? If our minds are closed, would you open them? If our priorities are out of whack, would you fix them? And would you take this seemingly foolish exercise uh, known as preaching, and would you have it come and bring kingdom power and change into our hearts, my heart, for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, We already know that one of the major themes that Paul presses in on time and again in this letter to his beloved church and uh, friends in Philippi is to uh, to experience joy. Uh, The other theme that we see that he makes mention of a number of times is the need to stand firm. We heard that read just now to stand firm. And while the imagery here is striving for a prize, some days I don't know about you, but it doesn't even seem like I'm running. Um, I'm tripping at best. I, you know, I, I, I think that the way to stand firm, it encourages me that, you know, if I don't feel like we're advancing, pressing on, that we could at least stand firm. And part of the biggest step uh, to standing firm is to not sit down. Right. To just keep moving, even if rather, rather slowly forward. We know it happened to me this week amidst a variety of distractions and challenges and emotions of melancholy and feeling overwhelmed. I, I wanted a few times to just crawl into a hole and, and, and sit there. The only problem was it was 10 a.m. in the morning. Uh, so, you know, I got responsibilities and the day has to go on. Things need my attention. How do we press on or at that very least take steps or even run a race? How would we do that? Well, it takes 
a measure of focus or refocusing our minds on the real goal and the real prize. That's what Paul is driving us to. What is what is it? Well, verse 12, he says, not that I have obtained or already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. What is it? What is he referring? What is he? What is the what is in view the prize and goal? Well, you got to go back to the previous few verses because he's saying uh, if you go back, you, you would see that it's uh, it's the, the prize of knowing Christ. Even even here, verse 12a, let me read it again for us. That he would be pressing on. I've already read 12. Obtaining the the, the uh, obtaining what I what's, I'm not made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Then look down further at verse 14. I press on forward to the goal for the prize of the upward. The goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. What what what, what is this? It's to know Christ. He said that earlier. If you go back, that he wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. It's that deep, intimate. Knowledge of God in Christ, not not just a, a thing that happens in our head, but actually something that is experiential and it's relational that we would know Christ in a very, very intimate way. And what is he saying here? I haven't even gotten there. Even the apostle, after all of these years, is saying I'm not it's not been perfected, not meaning precisely perfect, but flawless. But to say complete is another way of, of understanding that word perfect. A complete understanding. He still is growing and still striving and straining after a deep, intimate knowledge of Christ. And this is, by the way, something that intersects our very lives. It's not just an ethereal thing to know Christ and to know him in some type of, of uh, you know, relational way that doesn't intersect our life. It does intersect our life. So really, you know, if you ever walked into a problem or a decision or an emotion or a, a choice that... You would say, I want to know, I want to experience the knowledge of Christ as I enter into this conflict. If you, if, has it ever occurred to you, like, I'm, I'm, I'm now going to head into this relationship, this conversation, this trial. And I want to experience the knowledge of Christ. We're striving, whether it's in the peaks or the valleys, to know Christ, striving to know Christ when my ambition is high... Or my emotions are low. I actually want to know Christ more right now. Regardless of circumstances. In light of the circumstances. To know Christ when we have to make a weighty decision. Paul makes clear, even as an apostle, he is still learning and growing in this. Paul understands that he will never fully reach this goal in his lifetime. But nevertheless, he presses on towards it. The prize, a New Testament scholar Uh, William Hendrickson writes this. And so this is insightful. He says, when this perfection is called a goal, it's viewed as the object of human striving. When it is called a prize, it is viewed as the gift of God's sovereign grace. So as we run that race, right, if, if we are a follower of Christ, we are in a race, like it or not. And as we run that race, it's all of God's grace. But nevertheless, Paul is saying, I'm not resting on past experiences or victories. He's not just coasting, you know, gradually into the presence of God, just about to run out of fumes. He is saying, no, I'm pressing and straining and striving on. In other words, he's not resting because he knows that to, to run the race actually involves 
effort, that we would actually be expending effort. And Paul, of course, the Greeks are the one who came up with the Olympics many, many years ago. Perhaps Paul has that in view. I mean, it wouldn't be too far-fetched to imagine that he has the Olympic Games themselves in mind when he talks about this type of imagery. The prize, the goal, even here, the crown. It's about a mindset And amongst other things, I think that he would have us, I think Paul would have us see here, as I've listed in the order of service, the the contrast in these two mindsets. There's a earthly mindset and there is a heavenly mindset in view that governs these these runners. I mean, everyone's chasing a prize. Everyone's ambitious towards some goal, even on the lowest of days. But but where is that going and and, and what is in view? And, of course, our mindset would reflect... uh, A great deal. An earthly mindset, Paul says here in tears, he says he's troubled, verse 18, not because of the enemies of the cross. I mean, their destruction is God's business and his judgment, but his concern is for the people of God, the church that's deceived by those enemies and by those uh, people's evil influence. And and just to be clear, to say that we uh, should not have an earthly mindset is not to say. Uh, you know, we're not concerned about the everyday practical affairs of our life, right? He said, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to be concerned about, you know, financial planning or brushing my teeth or, you know, paying my bills or, you know, fixing my hair. Not that many of us have that much to work with. Uh, you, you got real life. You got to put, you got to pack your kids lunch next month, right? Or maybe, maybe kids, you got to pack your own lunch, okay? But, you know, earthly affairs, you, you, you know, these daily things, that's not to have your mind thinking about planning for working and endeavoring, working on hobbies and, and responsibilities and your day to day life is not a bad thing. But our our true and ultimate mindset is what's in view here. And the earthly mindset or to have as, as he expresses here. Well, let's just read it. It's about worldliness. Look at verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Those appetites that we have that are not according to God. And their glory is in their shame. But their minds set on earthly things. So it's it's that frame of thinking, a mindset of worldliness that is not by faith and trusting in God. Elsewhere, Paul writes in, uh, in another letter to the church at Colossae in Colossians 3, he brings into focus what's the difference between an earthly mindset and a, a, a worldly, earthly mindset and a heavenly one. And this is what he says. He encourages them to put to death what is earthly in you. So this is what an earthly mindset would involve. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked, past tense, when you were living in them. But now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. That's the earthly mindset. That's that's the self-absorbed mindset. That's that's the natural flow, right? Like like I said, if you walk into conflict, if you walk into a big decision, if 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 you just... You know, navigate your your race, which is a self-absorbed one. This is what will come out naturally. According to our own flesh and desires. It's the antithesis of genuine humility. 
which Paul has already talked about at, at length in encouraging them. Perhaps it's not full-on pride, though. Perhaps, rather, it's the effects of exhaustion or the corrupting influence of the world or our friends or voices that are, are very, very comfortable here in this life as if this is all there is in this world. On Friday, one of my favorite folk artists, Nancy Griffith, died. She has a song called The Wing and the Wheel. I listened to it this morning. And she introduces, she has a, a, a live, one of my favorite albums is a live recording. And Nancy Griffith, in introducing that song, The Wing and the Wheel, she talks about what inspired her to write that song. She writes, sometimes in life we look around at one another and become very complacent. This is a song that I wrote for two friends of mine that remind me in the most glorious way that there's no need for any human being to ever be complacent. But that's part of the problem. Is that we become, even if we're worldly ambitious and industrious, we can become spiritually complacent. And if indeed we choose the the easy path, which is that drifting away and towards the earthly mindset, it's when we, we fail to see that we are athletes in a race and that the journey is not yet finished. We're not coasting. When, not if, when we find ourselves caught in an earthly mindset, we need to simply... Frankly, it's not always easy, but clear as it is, repent. The, the, the very word repent, metanoia, means a change of mind. Subsequently, it also means a change of, of heart and behavior. We need to turn. We need to, to let go. Well, let's talk about the contrast to this, the heavenly mindset It's very clearly pointed out the contrast because he pivots immediately in the next verse, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform us. In other words, we are striving and longing because we are convinced and convicted that we are not home yet. But ultimately, if our identity is in material and earthly temporal things, which the world values, it will indeed, in fact, show up. However, if Christ is our identity and our union with him, our life with him and the future home that he has established for us in the new heavens and the new earth, then that too will shape us. It will translate. It will convey. It will it will appear. That was Paul, right? Because Christ Why all of this? Because look at verse 12. Because Christ had made him his own. Because we belong to Christ. My friends, what does your life convey? I'm not not talking about portray on social media. I'm saying what does the everyday ins and outs, the people close to you, what does your life convey as to where you're running and what your aim is and what's your prize and what's your goal? What is it? As followers of Christ, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Ultimately, why? Because our citizenship is in heaven, even right now. 
There's a missionary to illustrate this. I thought this was very helpful. John Hesiodor, a missionary to Laos many years ago, described the difference between the Laotian and the Vietnamese. This is what he writes. He says, before the colonists imposed national boundaries between the two countries, the kings of Laos, the king of Laos and the king of Vietnam, they reached an agreement on how they would do taxation. That's because at the border, whatever that would have been in that region, it was it was too intermingled. You couldn't easily distinguish. There wasn't like a dividing line between who lived on that side and this side. There were people, Laotians, Laotians and Vietnamese people living there. Who are we going to tax? How do we find out? He says, those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated with an Indian-style serpent were considered Laotians. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice, built their houses on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese dragons were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined his or her nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose cultural values he or she exhibited. Interesting. So, where, where are you a citizen? What are you? Where is your citizenship? What do your priorities and your choices? What are, what are your patterns? And the way that you spend your time and, and your money communicate your ultimate home. You know, Philippi was a city that was a colony of. Of the Roman Empire. But for the Roman Empire to expand, they didn't need everybody to come home to Rome. They needed everyone to enculturate and to live out the values of Rome elsewhere. And that would have been very tempting to the church in Philippi, of course. That would have been some of those worldly desires and the worldly mindset. But a heavenly mindset says something different. Our future home is in glory, and even now, at present, our citizenship is with Christ and his kingdom. Even our present bodies. Here, some days, we find it rather easy to long for a heaven. It's a pretty compelling promise, right? In verse 21, what does he say? That he would transform our lowly bodies, aching, struggling bodies, young people it's coming, uh, will be transformed. Imagine that, not only a body freed from the effects of sin, but the very presence of sin. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying is promised here. All of this happens because by grace through faith, our union with Christ, he is our resurrection. That is our future home. We are not home yet. We are not home yet. We are not home yet. But you and I are in a race. Here's my practical takeaways. Some application. As it pertains to, to striving for home, Pressing on towards the goal, heavenly, how do you have a heavenly mindset? Well, the first thing I would say is you cannot run nor win the race if you are not in it. If you would not enter the race, yes, it involves surrender and repentance. And maybe that, maybe you, you have not yet done that. Maybe you would say to Christ, Christ, please, today, totally, I surrender to you. I want to make you the Lord of my life, that I would follow you by faith. So repent. Repent or, 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 and enter the race or repent and re-enter the race. <laughs> the second thing I would say is the race is not a competition. It, this is not a place where only the elites achieve by a fraction of a second. Even the littlest ones 
by faith into the kingdom of heaven. Thanks be to God. Simple faith. Third thing I would say is you need to throw off some weight to run well. In our complacency or our pride, we can easily, my friends, get weighed down with distractions and with sin. It's the very reason that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 that we should, therefore, because we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily clings to us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You can't run distracted. Repent. Drop it. Let it go. I've seen many a defeated Christians. They, they, they seem as if there's always a block in the way of growing and, and, and enjoying contentment in Christ. But I know somewhere down inside their hearts there is sin that needs to be let, they need to let go of. And to them I offer the same thing and to you and to myself – the same thing that I say to our, our, our puppy, you know, who's walking around their house yet again with a, you know, a sneaker or a pen or something else that's not a toy. And I say, drop it, drop it, drop it. And does the dog drop it? No, she'll go and hide underneath the couch or something. I mean, it's just, you know, she knows that she even has this like little growl that she does. I'm not I'm not about to let this thing go. Until I come with a little piece of salami. And I say, drop it. And then that, that's what happens. Drop it in the name of the love of God and the gospel. Fourth thing I would say is you cannot run by yourself. Paul boldly here says in verse 17 that they should all unite. Look at it. Brothers, join. So there's, the, there's, there's, there's not you individually, but join together in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's a pretty bold statement, right? You know, it would sound like somewhat vain for Paul to say that. But I don't think he's boasting. I think it's an honest invitation to say my words and my life are not perfect, but they're also not disjointed in hypocrisy. Follow me. Paul's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And so and so find others. We, we, we need to find other people even if they only know a little bit more of the knowledge of Christ, even if they've only experienced a little more growth in grace and maturity, even if they only have a few more skills than we do, we can learn from them. You know, back to the story of Roger Bannister, by the way, even when he sought out to set that new world record and break the four minute mile, he ran with a group of other guys. True. And one of them was even out ahead of him as the pace setter. Now, none of them were as, quite as good a runner as he was in the end, at the, at the end of the race, because he's the one. But he needed those people to run with him. You think about that. You need each other. We need each other to grow. And some of you, you know, some of you need to reach out and, and ask others for help. And ask people who are humble, the people who say, I don't have much to offer you. Well, that's the right person. Good. You found them. And then some of you have something to offer others, even if you're only a little ways ahead. We need each other, don't we, to run this race faithfully? Mentors. 
people have, people have gained a little bit more of the knowledge of Christ as it pertains to a whole variety of seasons and, and issues of life. The last thing I would say is we run because he called us and he bought us. So don't, don't mistake me. I'm not saying just run harder. Because the only reason that you and I would run the race is because he called us. He bought us. That's, that's the verbiage here. Because he holds us. He grabbed the – he, verse 12, made us his own. And then it says in verse 14 that he called us. So thanks be to God. It's all of grace that he made us his own. Upwardly he calls us. And what is the one goal? Jesus Christ. And the way of the cross. Press on. Press on. Father, you are the Almighty. We humbly belong to you. And there we are safe and sound. Because you are the Heavenly Father in perfect love, we can trust you. And we ask that even now you'd forgive us. Uh, Forgive us of our complacency and our pride. Would you forgive us for having and holding an earthly mindset? For all of us, help us this week, Lord. Help us to be good witnesses and and ambassadors. Even if it were to mean embarrassment, may we live with a heavenly mindset and may our priorities reflect the glory of our heavenly citizenship, our final home. Lord, we pray for those who are followers, brothers and sisters who are in parts of the world where persecution, poverty, and imprisonment are very real. And that's because they're being faithful to you. And we pray today... For our brothers and sisters who were seeking to gather in countries like Afghanistan, especially Afghanistan. Lord, have mercy. We pray against the evils of those who would attack. We pray for perseverance for them, for people in places like North Korea and Somalia and Iran and Laos and Pakistan and China and many other places. Thank you, God, for their example and their faithfulness. Would you please meet them in their trials Give them strength and mercy and endurance. Lord, we pray for countries like Haiti today who have not only gone through terrible seasons of political turmoil, but even now have the great sorrow and pain of the rubbles of an earthquake. Have mercy, Lord. We continue, Lord, to remember places and individuals and communities and and businesses and people's livelihood deeply impacted because of this ongoing pandemic. Again, Lord, please have mercy. Strengthen us, Lord. Guide us. Please, we ask all of these things uh, for our joy, no doubt, but also for your glory, even as we pray in Jesus' name as he taught his disciples, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.